0: The Last Word with Matt Cooper. I'm delighted that we're joined today for The Culture Club by a very valued long-term contributor to the programme and indeed a very good friend of mine, Terry Prone, who has written her memoir, Caution to the Wind. Terry, thank you very much for joining us. I'm surprised we've never asked you before to do The Culture Club because you love so many things, particularly books, which we will get to a little bit later. But why now have you decided to write your
1: memoir, having written so many novels and other things over the years. It was an accident. It was a pandemic accident. What happened was that I was doing what I think many women did during the pandemic, which was decide, I'm going to do a massive spring clean. I'm going to tidy up. And I came across this plastic crate filled with cuttings, letters, all sorts of things. And as I went through it, I realised my wonderful mother, Lord Rester, the archivist, had kept every script I had written for the Gay Burn Hour, every bit of research I had done for it about prices of the time, and um, every letter that my husband had got from people when he left the priesthood. It was just the most fantastic archive. And I realized writing a memoir is, is going to be easy. Did you realize she was keeping all that material? No. And how did she get her hands on it? She would have kept every cutting at the time when I was writing. I was doing two columns a week when I was 2021 20, in evening newspapers and she obviously cut them out, clipped them, dated them. And it was just the most fantastic gesture of love. And I had known vaguely that there was some kind of archival stuff and there were photographs, but I had no idea how total it was.
0: The love is reciprocated very much in the book. That's true. And you obviously learned an awful lot from her. One of the things that I really took is that she was a feminist and that then went to you particularly about the thing,
1: always have your own money. Oh, yes. She was ferocious about that. She believed that no matter who you settled down with, no matter how good they were, no matter how generous they were, you should still have your own money, that freedom lay in earning your own money. And when she went back to work, when I was about 13, 14, for a market research company, she was just drunk with power and freedom. And I can remember one of the things that she just decided to do was to buy a car. And it was a big white Simca. And it's the only car, Matt, who's... Registration number I can remember. It was MZA 794. I couldn't give you the registration number of my own car today. But I think her sense of being able to buy her own car was was so infectious to me and my sister that the car became disproportionately important. By the way, when
0: you went and read all your clippings from your youth, how well did you write back then?
1: I wrote bloody well. I wrote really well because um what had happened was that I'd been kind of adopted by a man named Tony Butler, who's the features editor of the Evening Press, Long Defunct. And Tony, at some stage, sent me a letter in response to something I'd submitted. And he said, you can't spell and you can't punctuate, but you write funny stuff and that's what I need. So I'll teach you the rest. And so this wonderful man basically did journalism tutorials with me to teach me what to do. The other thing was, again, my mother. My mother believed that if you bored people, there was a fourth or fifth circle of hell for you. And so there was almost like a vulture on my shoulder all of the time saying, is this boring? Is this boring? Is this boring? Can you get to it faster? And it it was a great discipline.
0: And you also used to write, used to script Gay Byrne for his radio show. So those wonderful monologues that Gay Byrne delivered at the start of the program, they were really you, were they?
1: They were me, first of all, because I had been an actor. I knew how to write dialogue. And secondly, because I had always worshipped him. I knew how he talked. I knew how he lined up ideas and so I could write for him in a way that nobody else ever could. The odd thing was that when I eventually told Orty, "Listen, I'm out of here," um, they had to get two different writers to to fill the slot because I could do it fast. And he was he was such a wonderful professional. He would be there an hour before going on air going through the scripts and if I had put in here's where you break into tears, he would have practised that so that it sounded as though he was just doing it off the top of his head. There are very few broadcasters who can read a fairly lengthy script and make it sound as though they're not reading
0: it. So that means he was a wonderful performer, but was he also sincere then? Or was he putting on an act?
1: Oh, he was so sincere I mean one of the things that shocked me a bit about a year before he he died was out of the blue he said to me when we were having a cup of coffee he said I, I worry that I wasn't kind enough to the production teams that worked with me and I just went wide eyed because he, he was not sentimental there was none of this how's your old back and is your granny good and how you feel none of that sort of stuff he was brisk and um, if you did something right, he would say, a nice one today, Miss Brown, thanking you, and move on. But he was always appreciative and he never allowed you to take the blame for anything. If he read it on the air, he was responsible for it.
0: Okay, let's move on. I might come back if we've time at the end a little bit more about your wonderful book, Caution to the Wind, which is so honest. I want to talk to you about music, not books, music. Is music a big part
1: of your life? Huge, because my mother was a pianist and a music teacher. And so the house every afternoon when it was just me and her, because my sister was older, um, my mother would play the piano and there are still pieces of music like saint uh, Russell of Spring, where if I Tune in to Lyric FM and it's on. It stops my heart. It is so evocative of her.
0: Although you didn't pick up the piano yourself, I understand. Oh.
1: <laughs> I did try, I did a year, and Sister Fidelma hated me nearly as much as I hated her. And at a certain stage, I said, the hell with this. But the other kind of music that was in our house, my father was a big doily Cart fan. So Gilbert and Sullivan, I know practically all the words to every song in all of the operettas. And then my sister was, and still is, big fan of classical music so that... Um what really beautiful choice in classical music, the only other thing that she, she was a big fan of was Pat Boone. Now, nobody remembers Pat Boone now, but he really did have the most glorious crooner's voice. And Hilary, she will not love me for saying this on the air, but she did have her room absolutely pasted with posters of Pat Boone. So
0: that's what you're nominating as, given that you never bought a single <laughs> in your teens, your first single, Pat Boone. Let's hear Bernadine. <laughs>
1: Have a look, Terry, of somebody who hadn't
0: heard that in a long time.
1: I don't suppose I've heard it in 50 years, but it, it just clicks in. Not that there's that much in the way of complex lyrics to it, let's be honest. Favourite album? You have gone for traditional jazz and you're going for the left... Bank Bearcats. Oh yeah, this was a great discovery. First of all, uh, we always loved traditional jazz in our house. Um, the real old practitioners, Doc Holliday and um, what's um, Sachmo. But at some stage, I came third in an essay competition. The shame of it only come in third. And the prize was this LP. And it had a picture on the front cover of bears, as in bears in the wood, uh, climbing upstairs, and they each had a different jazz instrument, like a trombone, a tuba, whatever. And my sister was in charge of the record player. So she put it on, and we sat down to decide what it was like. And it was fantastic. I mean, it was the most joyful, exciting Dixie that I had heard in years. And the the back of the, the uh, record said that, These were young French, mostly students, although one of them was a former deckhand, who had no musical training and who had just decided to adapt American traditional jazz uh, and give it a Parisian flavour. So we all bought that. And they even said where the records were, because there were three in a row, where they were recorded. Um, It was Maison Diabolique in such and such a Rue de Something in Paris. And it wasn't until relatively recently that I discovered the entire thing was a lie. There was no French connection. There were no French musicians. What happened was that somebody in Philadelphia pulled together a whole bunch of session guys. A
0: Philadelphian
1: Louis Walsh. uh, Exactly. And said to them, listen, lads, you'll get so many uh, dollars for this and... We'll market it as something that has nothing to do with you. And even at the time, there were some jazz musicians in Philadelphia who noticed little stylistic things that made them say, That ain't no Frenchman. That's so and so down at the such and such club. But they actually created a false identity and sold it. And only really when the internet came on stream and people began to query. Did the whole truth come out? The
0: left bank Bearcats. Let's hear shaken with Bibi. That's the Left Bank Bearcats. And when we get to Favourite Band, we'll get to E Street with Bruce Springsteen
1: in a second. You've also put Bagatelle in there. Oh yeah, I think um, That Summer in Dublin is just arguably the best song that's ever been written about Dublin. I think it's magic.
0: Why is that? Actually, do you know what? Let's play a little bit of it for those who may not be familiar with it and then you can explain.
2: I'll always remember your kind words And I'll still remember your name but I've seen you changing and turning, and I know the things just won't be the same. I remember that summer in Dublin And the lifters it stank like hell And the young people walking on Grafton Street everyone I
0: was glad we went going to fall. Bagatelle, Liam Riley there, of course, was a Bray man from Wicklow rather than a Dublin man. But what is it about the
1: song that you love so much? It's just like a little play. It's the perfect ballad in that it tells a story. But it tells a story that every Dubliner knows. The low flying jet, the scream of the low flying jet, the interruptions, the drunk on the bus... It is an amazing amount of memorabilia about Dublin stuffed into a relatively short song and it is it's sung with a great honesty. It's not he's not pretentious about the way he sings it or um looking for stylistic odd he just sings it straight and you have to admit any song that opens with um, I remember that song and the Liffey as it stank like hell only a Dublin well I suppose it wasn't a Dubliner who wrote it according to you <laughs>
0: <laughs> Well it's funny enough we had a couple of Billy Joel songs last night and there's that touch of Billy Joel in an Irish context.
1: Exactly
0: yes. Okay which brings us to your best gig and you also had as your favourite band the East Street Band who of course are with Bruce Springsteen what do you love so much about Springsteen and the East Street Band?
1: Oh, there's, there's a particular track that I am in love with and it, it runs on the internet. You can find it runs to nearly nine minutes and it's called Pay Me My Money Down. And the I love it for two reasons. It, it sort of sums up Springsteen and the E Street Band for me. That's for starters because he plays with every one of the band members. He calls them in by name. The the first is a woman who does a fabulous fiddle solo. And then each of the other instruments, the trombone, the accordion. And he's standing there with such appreciation for his band members. He just loves them. And they love each other. There's There are two shots of each of them as they move back into the group. And... They're having the time of their life. And that's something that I think is always magical, whether it's in radio presenters or bands or any um, any profession that deals with the public. If they really love what they're doing, there's an extra magic about it.
0: You've seen him play live, though?
1: Oh, I have. Oh, I have. And the physical energy of this man is just breathtaking. And he has, he's part of a tradition that I think is important. Um, what was the name of Bur Lives? was the guy who uh, kind of started that sort of thing back in the 30s and 40s. He, he picked up and recast slave songs and working people's songs. And that's the thing about... And um, that particular Pay Me My Money Down, it, it's a, an old song of uh, black stevedores who, for the first time, the law was on their side and they were demanding to be paid their money at the end of the job and not postponed. So all of that, I find fascinating about Springsteen. He's more than energy. He's more than fine music. There's an excitement and a thoughtfulness to him.
0: Did you read his autobiography? No, I didn't. I'm sorry. That's the one book you probably haven't read. <laughs> I must give you a copy of it. We're going to have to take a break. We'll be back with more of The Culture Club with Terry Prone after this. Welcome back. We have The Culture Club. Terry Prone has just published her wonderful memoir, Caution to the Wind, and that's why she's with us on The Culture Club today. And we will get to books in a moment.
1: Uh, movies. Do you watch many movies? No. Um, I used to go to the movies very frequently and then at a certain stage and I can't even identify at what point it was I think it may have been when we went to the first um, 007 with Pierce Brosnan and there was the most incredibly exciting first three minutes and at the end of it breathless I turned to my husband and he was fast asleep and I thought, nah, let's just go home. If you can sleep through the first three minutes of a, an 007, nah, you're not going to enjoy Could the rest of it. Could you not just allow
0: him to sleep on and you enjoy <laughs> watching it? <laughs> it
1: just felt we weren't doing it together.
0: Okay, that's nice. I like that. Okay, uh, but there is one movie you have picked out because you do occasionally watch them. You've got Paul Mescal's After Sun. Yes, have
1: you seen it? No, Well, there's a gift from me to you. It is the most beautiful performance in recent cinematic history. It is heart-chokingly sad in the most quiet way. It's looking at a man who you realise about halfway through is in deep, deep trouble. He's trying to let on not to be in deep trouble. He's surrounded... Even on the phone, his his wife is, is checking up. Are you OK? Are you OK? It's the most amazingly beautiful, subtle performance by Mesko.
0: There's not a lot of dialogue in this movie, so the bit that we have doesn't actually, I think, feature him. It's got Frankie Curio as Sophie in Aftersun. I think it's nice that we share the same sky.
1: What do you mean? Well, like, sometimes at playtime, I look up to the sky, and if I can see the sun, then I think about the fact that we
0: can both see the sun, so even though we're not actually in the same place and we're not actually together, we kind of are in a way, you know? Like, we're both underneath the same sky, so kind of together. Okay, that's a little bit of an sun. Television.
1: You do not watch television? Never. I, I, Why not? Because it's so time-consuming. Almost anything else gives you the information in a more concentrated form. Radio does, social media does, and television takes forever to get to the point. I watch television if I have to, if I have prepared somebody for a television programme then, of course, I will watch them and assess how well or badly they've done. But because my parents didn't approve of television, it kind of never became part of my life. And also, I have to confess, you're probably way too young to remember this. There was a television, a televisual atrocity called Mr. Ed. You've never heard of Mr. Ed. It Was that with a talking horse? It was, It was the ugliest horse you have ever seen. It was the most improbably unanimated. It was just vile. Uh, And I would get on the bus going to school the day after Mr. Ed had been on and nobody would talk about anything but Mr. Ed. And at that stage, I think I made the decision, this television lark is crap. It is okay to appear on, but not watch. Not even a box set that you might enjoy a drama series? Well, a very good friend of mine, who's a broadcaster, who's present company, did give me a box set of The West Wing, and I faithfully and adoringly watched it, and I have never returned it. But it was I never meant to be
0: returned. I gave it to you as a gift, <laughs> Terry, because I thought you would like the sharpness of I the dialogue. It. I loved and it, and also the a lot of people said it was a little bit unreal a bit too soap opery and that it was too probably ideologically pure but i loved the good intention of it that
1: politics is for good it 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 hammers home a thing that's important about art in that any great work of art sums up the the reality of of that particular time and I think the West Wing summed up a time before Trump in a way that you could now visit almost the way you would do a pilgrimage. Hey, it actually was like this. It was this well-intended, the audacity of hope was there. Let's hear a clip with Martin Sheen as President Bartlett in the West Wing. And
0: I think this, hopefully you'll agree, is well chosen because he explains in a debate how some issues are far too nuanced and complicated for ten-word answers. Mr. Ritchie, many economists have stated that the tax cut, which is the centrepiece of your economic agenda,
2: could actually harm the economy. Is now really the time to cut taxes? You bet it is. We need to cut taxes for one reason... The American people know how to spend their money better than the federal government does. President, your rebuttal. There it is. What the hell? He's got it. That's the 10-word answer my staff's been looking for for two weeks. There it is. 10-word answers can kill you in political campaigns. They're the tip of the sword. Here's my question. What are the next 10 words of your answer? Your taxes are too high, so are mine. Give me the next 10 words. How are we going to do it? Give me 10 after that. I'll drop out of the race right now. Every once in a while, every once in a while, there's a day with an absolute right and an absolute wrong. But those days almost always include body counts. Other than that, there aren't very many unnuanced moments in leading a country that's way too big for ten words. I'm the President of the United States, not the President of the people who agree with me. And by the way, if the left has a problem with that, they should vote for somebody else. Oh,
0: wow. Because, Terry, a lot of people would think that your job when you're helping
1: politicians is to give them the ten-word answers, isn't it? One of our basic rules from the time that we started was that none of our people are ever allowed to put answers in a client's mouth. I mean, that's one of the reasons why, no offence, we have very rarely used television or radio people as trainers because they're egging to put words in people's mouths. And the second thing that you're always looking for is by pushing and probing that somebody, a politician will reach the thing that they're really, that they believe in, that they would be prepared to die for, that they're rooted in and that they desperately want other people to believe in too. And when they say it, it's your job to capture it and make them say it again and again and again. There is at the moment an impoverishment in political discourse where very few politicians are reaching for great possibilities and magnificence and hope. And that's what I have always been trying to train them to do. I mean, it's much easier to do the thing of, oh, she tells them to smile at the end of their sentences and say, I'm glad you asked me that question. Yeah, that's dead easy. That's the 10 words summing up of what I do.
0: I look forward to the second volume of your memoirs. I know you have client confidentiality issues, but I really would like to read more of your interactions with various politicians over the years. We have to get to books because we are coming to a close. You couldn't just give us one book, so I'll have to ask you
1: about a few. Maeve Brennan's The Springs of Affection? This is just the most wonderful, wonderful thing. Maeve Brennan um, wrote these short stories About miserably contained and right wing and cold suburban Dublin. But what was fascinating about it was she was writing them in Manhattan, where she worked for the New Yorker magazine. And she was a huge success with the New Yorker. And then her life began to drift apart. And she ended up as a derelict living in a railway station in the middle of New York. And I, was, I came across the first book, The Springs of Affection, quite by accident in a remainder shop, read it and was stunned and began to research who was this woman. And it suddenly struck me. It said in one of the sources that she had gone to school with Miss Louise Gavin Duffy. And I said to my mother, hang on a second. You went to Louise Gavin Duffy's school. Yes, I did did you know a Maeve Brennan? And there was a small pause and she said, the ambassador's daughter, which she was. She was the daughter of the um, ambassador to America. And I said, what was she like? And my mother thought for a moment and then she said, obnoxious and crazy. And I thought, isn't it interesting? My mother would not have met her after they were seven years of age, but she spotted something strange about her and I told my mother what had happened to her, and she she said something about that sometimes geniuses don't get the help that they actually need to survive. But if if you come across her work anywhere, they have now been reprinted. They are fantastic. Short you found stories. it in a
0: remainder bin. About how many books do you reckon you have at home? Fifteen
1: thousand. How many? <laughs> Fifteen thousand, at least. I haven't counted them recently, but I had to count them. How many of them have you read? Uh, About 14,350. Do you finish everything? No. Um, I used to finish everything because my mother had a rule that said, you start it, you finish it. But once I hit 70, I decided, you know something, I may not have the time for this. So if if I land on a complete woodener, I'd throw it there. I have three
0: other books you gave us in the list and I have only time for you to talk about one in a bit of detail. So they are Mountains of Fire by Clive Oppenheimer, Head Hand, Heart by David Goodhart and Demon Copperhead by Barbara Kingsolver. Which one will you pick
1: of those three? Demon for? Copperhead because it is a tour de force. Barbara Kingsolver I have loved for a long time but she, she suddenly decided a few years ago that she was going to do... An update of David Copperfield uh, that would allow her to explore abject poverty of a child in America. And so she invented this character called Demon Copperhead. His name was actually Damon, but nobody got it right. And she follows him all the way through to adulthood. It would it's a kick in the heart all of the time because it looks at the care system in America, the foster system the cruelty, but it's also desperately funny and she introduces right in the middle of it an actual character from David Copperfield called Mrs. Gummidge. And if you only read the pages about Mrs. Gummidge, you should read this book because Mrs. Gummidge is the most complaining human being in the world. We have to leave it there. We're out of time, unfortunately.
0: There's other things I wanted to get to, don't have time to get to, but it's been fantastic having you here on the programme. Terry Prone, the memoir, highly recommended memoir, is Caution to the Wind. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30.
2: Today FM.